Thanks, Sally. Good morning, church. My name is Pastor Scott. If you're new or visiting this morning, super glad to join us. A little bit different morning, but we have uh, confidence that we gather under Jesus' strength, not our own. We're on full display of that this morning. And really excited about starting this series with you. This series... Uh, for Lent, we're going to be talking about Christ in the Psalms. We're going to be talking through the Psalms, different Psalms each week, looking at how Christ shows up. Today, the sermon title is called Heart-Shaped Hope. And my firm belief as I prepared this uh, message for you this morning, as I worked all week on it, was that God would really encounter you. Uh, in the old story of authenticity that, that comes through the Psalms into your present tense reality of how is Christ speaking to you in your everyday So let me say a prayer for us and we'll begin. Jesus, thank you so much for this time and this place and your people. And we gather today in your strength, God, under your banner. Uh, We uh, are so grateful for the chance uh, to sing of your great deeds, to to hear your words spoken, to have the joy of children amongst us and amidst us. And so, God, we just pray that your spirit would be heavy in this place. And God, we, we pray that you'd encounter us this morning. As we look at doubt, as we look at envy, as we look at the challenges facing each and, one of, each and every one of our faiths, uh, God, would you be honored this morning? And all God's people said, amen. Christ in the Psalms 1, sermon title is called Heart-Shaped Hope, and over the next six weeks, we'll be teaching through the Psalms. The Psalms are uh, a beautiful handle for real life. A beautiful encounter with the uh, doubt and the uh, displays of faith in our lives, of places of real emotion, authentic lament, uh, hopeful and purposeful praise. All this comes through the Psalms, and our hope through the series as we go towards Easter, because it's a little different to be studying Psalms in anticipation for Easter morning, but our hope through the series is that our hearts would be changed by Jesus that our hearts would be engaged with Christ. You think of the Emmaus walk, that post-resurrection story told in the Gospel of Luke where the two disciples, one of them didn't have a name, the other Cleopas, and Jesus walked for three hours and then, and then was revealed in their presence. And Jesus disappeared and they said in, in Luke 24, weren't our hearts burning while he talked about the scriptures with us? As we're in a faith walk, uh, we want to have hearts that are so emboldened and encouraged that doubt is being discouraged within us. Though it creeps up each and every day, uh, through Christ there is a power beyond ourselves. In today's text, Psalm 73, we have this question that pokes out over and over and over again through Psalm 73, how's our heart? How's that, that space within us that we call our heart, the wellspring of our mind, will, and emotions that in the last series we called our soul, how is that place within me where I want the Spirit of God to break through my body, how is my heart? In Psalm 73, there's five mentions uh, of, of the Asaph uh, Psalm about heart. Because what you ruminate will become what you worship. And so in this text today, uh, the, the psalmist, Aphis, Aphis, uh, Asaph, sorry, is, is challenging us, challenging the way in which doubt creeped into his faith and, and showing the way in which envy was this huge precursor to doubt in his life. Envy. It's kind of a practical application to doubt. 
You know, see, sometimes in the church, we make people that have doubts feel really discouraged. But actually, sometimes doubt can be an on-ramp to deeper faith. When you're actually going, as the Psalms do, to encounter God, you're hungry. Now, that's a doubt, but it's, it's asking for encounter. But today, in Psalm 73, we're going to see that doubt in the articulation of envy will often destroy. If you're new, you might uh, not know this, but people come, like, I, I like to tell stories. I often learn about things through stories. I often find, after the fact, people hold on to stories and illustrations as a practical way for God to encounter them in their own story. So as I thought about illustration this morning, I had this great illustration about envy. I was 15, and this kid beat me for class presidency. His name was Nick Herring, but I was going to chit, like literally, and I was going to change his name to like Sam, uh, you know, Sardine or something. And he had a better turtleneck than me because it was the late 80s, and we wore turtlenecks and penny loafers, and he beat me, and my identity unraveled, and it was this cute little illustration But the more that I thought about it, I'm like, that's a really, really lame illustration compared to this week, Ash Wednesday, driving my my old vehicle, it's like 20 years old, and looking at other newer electric vehicles and just like having disdain in my heart, driving past a church building that another church possessed that for a while our church was looking at and then seeing them move in and seeing them live into it. Because you might be shocked to know this, but 11 years in, the plan was not to be still living in a semi-truck. Like this morning, it's really easy to remember, this was not our plan to always be mobile. Like, yeah, there are opportunities, but there's also huge discouragements. The texts are coming at seven o'clock this morning. The truck's dead. We're like mobilizing pickup trucks, grabbing things, throwing them in trucks over at the coffee shop, driving them over. I'm like, oh my gosh. So just this week, as I'm driving around, envy, discouragement, the voice, Ash Wednesday, the pastor, like, tell me you have a holy reflection on the morning of Ash Wednesday. No, I'm in my own pity party, man. And then it leads into discouragement. Scott, if you were a better leader, dot, 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 dot. If you were a better husband and provider, dot, 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 dot. Man, we live in those dots. We live in real spaces where envy creeps in as this silent little mouse in the storeroom of our lives. And if we're not careful, gives birth to this more insidious doubt that says that God's not really that powerful, is he? He doesn't really want to provide for you, does he? He can't really heal her sickness, can he? And doubt starts to just destroy God's people. So today we'll look at doubt through this angle of envy, and then where the, where the psalm gets to at the end is this place of deep encouragement, this place that is hope for our hearts, and envy can be destroyed, and doubt can be minimized if we approach God in the, in the, in the actual everyday. And when we have days like I had Wednesday, when we turn instead of from places of doubt and discouragement and try to refocus on the provider, focus on Christ present in the Psalms, who is calling us to a deeper belief right in the midst of everyday doubts. Uh, That's where we're going this morning. So let's look at the reality of doubts here. Psalm 73, we're going to break it into three different passages. We'll be just looking through this quickly here. Psalm 73, verse 1 through 5. This is a psalm of Asaph. Surely good is 
Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For why? Where was this, where was this doubt birth? For I envied the arrogant. I saw it when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They've got no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong, and they're free from common burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. They don't get sick like I do. They don't get discouraged like I do. And so Asaph says, surely I know God is good to others, even to the nation, but not for me. Who is Asaph? Pretty interesting. I didn't know this till this week, though I've seen that my whole life as I've read the Psalms. Asaph was likely a man in his late 20s. He was a ministry leader for David. He led one of David's three choirs. He was from the Levite's tribe, so he's from the family of faith. His father, Berechiah, was a doorkeeper in the covenant of the ark. So he's kind of a big deal. He's a professional Christian. He's a professional Christian. It's all he's ever known. He likely would have had his basic needs met by, by other people because the Levites were commanded in Leviticus and other places to take offerings and to, and to provide for those that, that offered worship for them. But this is really convicting for me, if I can be really honest with y'all. He was a professional Christian that understands with his head and his theological precepts and his memorization, he would have memorized the Torah. He knew the Bible. He knew the scriptures. He led the songs. He's heard God was good to others, but he's not sure that God is good to him. And I don't know if that resonates with anyone else in the room, but it sure does with me this week. No, God, I I know that you're good, but are you for me? Like, I know you, I know, I'm not, I'm not saying that God doesn't exist, but there's this underlying doubt that God will provide, that God will heal, that God will meet my needs, that God can care for this child who I'm worried about, that God can fix this broken relationship that I'm stuck in. Like, God, this is where my doubt comes from. And I have to be honest, when I look into the world, it's easy for me to see other people being provided for. That was, that was literally my Wednesday morning. I'm driving my daughter's 20-year-old Volkswagen Beetle and going past people like, oh, I know that guy, brand new XYZ vehicle. I won't, some of you probably drive that vehicle, so I'm not going to shame you. Like, you drive a nice vehicle. You should drive, like, enjoy it. And like, I'm driving this 20-year-old Beetle, like, don't worry about me. I'm fine. I'm just bitter at God, right? You know, it's like, man, this can be my story, It's like, oh, you mean the old story, pre-Christian. It's like, no, Wednesday morning. Like, this is what Asaph's deal is. He's looking around and seeing other people flourish in a way for him. And then these words that are just, oh, he says, but as for me, I forget that God is good for me. And so doubt is birthed in him. He says, I nearly lost my foothold. For I, verse three, I envied the arrogant. His envy became doubt. His envy became disengagement. His envy nearly destroys him. Envy, pretty simple. He uses it here in Hebrew, translated to envy. It's commonly defined as just discontentment regarding someone else's stuff, their material possessions, their relationships, their workplace achievements, their family life. And I think it's really helpful for us as a church just to admit it's easy to compare ourselves to others. It's easy 
to, to, to have envy. We'll all struggle with it at one time or another. But it's incredibly dangerous to a vibrant faith. It's incredibly dangerous. Dante, uh, he considered envy the, the radix emlorum, the root of all evil. A recent study said there's a greater frequency of social media, uh, social media for uh, higher potential for depression. So literally those that engage in social media that is really birthed on an idea, yes, of sharing content and sharing our celebrations, but if we're honest, it's so easy in social media to, to envy, to see, play, like, I see them in Mexico or Hawaii or name the warm destination over the last hundred days, and you hate them a little bit in your heart, if you're honest, right? And and like, this is where it's birthed from. There's so much that's so great about social media, but if we're not careful, envy starts to move in. One scholar recently said that envy is a currency of mimetic desire, like a mime, that, that you start to, in envy, want to follow someone else's life. You want to mime them. And in this way, envy, if we're not careful, becomes like reverse worship. When we envy somebody else, we take something like affection and it becomes resentment, but it starts to get our attention. And the things that get our attention become false gods in our life. This is where idol worship is born. Envy starts to say there's a life other than the one God has placed me in. There's a vehicle other than the 20-year-old beetle that I'm driving today. There's a church other than the one I'm currently leading that has a truck that's broken down at a coffee shop. Like, this is the real-life situations, and man, if we're, if we're stuck in those stories saying, God, provide for me in a different way than what you currently provided, God can handle that. He's not judging us. He's not withdrawing affection from us. But we start to worship that which we don't have. And this is why the psalm is so important for us to study because Asa says, pay attention. This can destroy you. Proverbs 14.30 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but get this, envy rots the bones. Never seen that proverb until this week. A heart at peace, remember we're talking about heart today, a heart at peace gives life to our bodies, but envy rots the bones. I think it's interesting that Solomon, the writer of the proverb, is, is kind of pointing out, rots us from the inside out. That when we're wholehearted, that there's this goodness that we can kind of encounter the God of every day and pluses and minuses. But when envy becomes our foundation, it starts to rot us from the inside out. And it's amazing to me because I talk to you and I'm the same. Like we can worship on the mountaintop and we can worship when we see God doing really miraculous things in the lives of others. But if we're not careful, we can really miss the beauty of our own life. Envy creates doubt. We've said it before, I'll say it again. If you have the notion that the grass is greener in someone else's life, it's time to water your own grass. It's time to just pay attention to what God has put you in, into the 20-year-old beetle, into the mobile church, into the actual relationship. I'm not saying God doesn't have room for your discouragement. Absolutely not what the psalm is saying. But there is a warning from Asaph that his faith was almost destroyed when he started to envy a life of someone else. 
Jesus would talk about this in Matthew, where he said, blessed are the pure-hearted, they will see God. And so I just really, really want to encourage you, especially during Lent, pay attention to where you focus your attention. Because what you stare at will become your God. And if your life is being defined by that which you don't currently possess, God's got room for you at the table. Please hear me for that. But your doubt will increase in the goodness of God. What do you pay attention to? I I had this thing happen to me the other day when I picked up my phone. It was amazing because my phone had like everything I cared about was already on the home screen. Like Sounders were opening season. There was this great article by, you know, about MLS.com and, and uh, you know, there's this and that happening politically and this and that happening with the national party. Like all this stuff just comes right to my phone. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, Heather and I were talking about something. She opens up Instagram, and the very thing we were talking about with our child was the number one thing in her feed, like somebody trying to sell a product for something. Like, I I swear, it's like our phones are listening to us. Don't tell our phones, right? But there's this curated news feed thing where the stuff that we search for, the algorithms know, I'm going to give that person more of that. Facebook knows this. The news sites knows that. Google knows this. That's why, and I'm not... Not saying be scared of technology, but just pay attention because we become what we worship. And Asaph said he started to worship a life other than the one God had put him in, even though he was being provided for, and it almost destroyed him. So there's this reality of doubt through envy, and then there's a remedy here in verses 12 through 19, and it's not a quick fix. This is going to be something we're going to aim at. We're not going to achieve it. We're going to aim at it, but look what Asaph says in verses 12 through 19. This is where the remedy starts to be prescribed. This is what the wicked are like. They're always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain, I've kept my heart pure, and I've wasted, I'm sorry, I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. This is where his doubt was being just, just cultivated and like a cauldron that he couldn't, he couldn't free himself up from. He, he's stuck in this, in this cycle where he's trying to understand it and he's troubled deeply. Verse 17, this is where the, the psalm flips here. To enter the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. Remember earlier he said he was on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away, swept away by terrors. And, and this is where for some, some of that Old Testament imagery where, where the bad guys will be killed and the good guys will live. You may struggle with this a little bit, but don't miss the point. What Asaph is saying here is that his envy started to destroy him and he was in this place where he couldn't get out of this troubled doubt where he just couldn't get past it until he started to focus on on the sanctuary of God and the presence of God and not just the change of his provision. And really, if you look into here, like if you have your Bibles open, that the Verse 12 seems to be the the root of his envy and his doubt, where he says, they go on amassing wealth. Now, I don't know if this is because he's a a priest, and so there would have been certain boundaries on how much he could amass, but that's really troubling him. It's the material possessions of somebody else that are tripping up his belief in a powerful God. Almost to the point of saying it destroyed his faith, this professional Christian. 
This is, the, this is the root of the doubt, that others have more stuff, and it's destroying his faith. That you can be wealthy and love Jesus as long as you don't worship it. I mean, some of my greatest friends are able to do amazing things for the kingdom because God has blessed them tremendously, like with an idea that they took to market or a work ethic or a a family business that they continued or an opportunity. And so when when God, and this is all through the scriptures, when we've been blessed, we're able to bring that back to God and we're able to provide for others or even if time, some of us have more time and so we're able to to bless people in the church by, by serving them. Like however God has blessed you, We're meant to be blessed, remember Genesis 12, to be a blessing. So the problem isn't wealth, it is if we become an idol. The problem for Asaph is his doubt is born in this place of envy until he starts to refocus. That's what verse 13 and 14 is like, my heart is messed up. I can't get out of this cycle on my own. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply and then... That word in verse 17, man, the whole thing hinges. Then. Then I understood their destiny when I entered the sanctuary of God. This is the, this is the real thing about envy. The envy lays a choice at our doorstep. Where will I put my attention? Do, do, I, do I actually have a faith that says that God will move even if my present tense reality and the people around me are, are discouraging me or in relationships and financial provision and in something going on in, in our physical health? But he says it, when he approached God, then he got the perspective shift that he was so hungry for and everything changed for him. And this is what's so important for us as a church that we continue to believe that God has power, that God is not an if-then God, that if we worship him and if we do this and if we do this, then he'll bless us. No, it's, it's not like that. That's actually the world's narrative, that if we pursue wealth, if we have better, you know, better, you know, you name it, vacations, um, healthcare, or, you know, children, parents, like if we had those things, then we'd be happy, Asaph's just laying that on the, on the altar, saying, no, God, I know that real faith comes in following you. And this is where faith is born. And it's never so easy as we make it sound. It's going to be a pursuit. And it's going to be something we're going to have to battle again and again and again. But God has power. Christ has power. There's this amazing story in Mark 9 that uh, we, we have talked about before in Mark 9 20 like this is what faith looks like they brought a boy who's possessed and when the spirit inside the boy saw Jesus it immediately throw the boy into a convulsion he fell to the ground he rolled around he's foaming at the mouth Jesus asked the boy's father how long has he been like this from childhood he answered it's often thrown him into a fire or water trying to kill him because the enemy does want to kill us envy actually is a, is a product of the enemy saying that God can't provide for us and so when this kind of doubt is birthed it will destroy real faith the enemy is trying to kill him but if you can Jesus if you can do anything take pity on us and help us if you can said Jesus everything is possible for one who believes everything immediately the boy's father exclaimed I do believe help me overcome my unbelief 
And that's one of the most beautiful verses in the whole New Testament. This is what faith looks like. I believe and yet envy's creeping in. I believe and yet doubt continues to be at my doorstep because of something that's not happened. I believe, but Jesus, I want more of you in my life. And when Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lift him to his feet and he stood up. This is the point of the scriptures that our hearts would be changed by the presence of Christ. That our lives would not depend on the situation that we find ourselves in our physical health, in our financial health, in in, in our relational health, that we would be defined as recipients of a great gift, that we would be entering in to the Father's love for us through the Son. And that each and every day there is a choice laid at our doorstep. If you can do this thing, Jesus, I so want this thing to happen. But real faith says, in the midst of what I don't understand, in the midst of that which I want to envy in the world around me, I will choose to have faith. And this becomes Asaph's remedy. It's a gift, man. And I, I, could, I could name 20 things that I would like to receive tomorrow, but this day I receive this gift of what, Jesus, you put in my hand. And you give me your grace, and you give me your love, and you give me your mercy, and so teach me to be content there. Teach me that even while I'm wanting you to work in a situation, that my faith will have a buoyancy, an ability to float based on your goodness, God. Because if we're defining God's power by the thing that he does for us next, that's like an ATM machine. That's not, that's not how God works. But God has this great gift of love and peace and mercy. And every day he says, receive it anew. Enter into this kind of relationship with me. We did Ash Wednesday service at Green Lake. Some of you were there. It was a really beautiful service. My friend Eric preached. We worshiped. The sanctuary was full. And at the end, the pastors of the different locations stood up front, and we did the imposition of ashes, where we, we literally take our thumb and dip it in ash, and we say, remember, from dust you came, and from dust you shall return. Some of you grew up in, in traditions where you do that, and some of you that's really foreign The funny thing is, Heather and I went on a date afterwards, and all that was close was a bar, and we walk in, and we have ashes on our head, and there's a table full of people with ashes on their head, we're laughing, we're like, ah, you're like, you're not doing anything bad, we're not doing anything bad, Jesus loves us. But man, as people came forward, tall people and short people, brown people and, and white people, male, female, and female, like... You don't pre-qualify. We're not checking behavior cards. We're not checking attendance cards. We're not checking anything. It's all a gift. And so everybody that came, remember, from dust you came, and from dust you shall return. Your life is dust, but God is for you. And during the Lenten season, we're called to remember this wilderness journey that my life is not based on the provisions that God puts in my hand. My life is based on this promise that though I'm dust, the Spirit of God wants to live in me. 
and wants to change me from the inside out and take those places of my doubt and breathe his life within. So Asaph has this message, and we get this at the end. This is the point. The doubts would be destroyed in the midst of the glory of God. This is such beautiful language here as we close Psalm 73. Look at verse 21 through 28. Asaph closes here. He says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. This is the old story. This is where the doubt was living. I was like a brute beast before you. And any of you that have kind of grown up with horses or cows or animals, you think about like trying to hold an animal down to, to care for it even, and, and they, they're trying to just tear themselves away from you. This is what the psalm is saying. I'm like a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And after you'll take me into glory, whom have I in heaven but you, God? And earth is nothing I desire besides you. That though I desire everything else, what's in heaven where you're taking me to is you, God. And so my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all of your deeds. Uh, you take me into glory, God. That's the kavod. That's the presence of God. That's the very, you know, God-centeredness that he gets taken into this place of encounter. This is amazing. If my heart fails, if my health fails, that I have everything I need in God. Lamentations 5, in this midst of this big lament, there's this encouragement. Retur- restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old. Verse 28, Psalm 73. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I just want to encourage you this morning. If you're in this place of nearness to the Lord, thank you, Jesus. We just want to, we want to give gratitude for that place that you're in. For many of the rest of us, if we don't find ourselves in this nearness of God, how this Hebrew word nearness, it wasn't a fixed location. It, it is a noun, but it has an element of approach to it. This element of movement to it. That we're called to be nearing God, moving to God, restoring ourselves to God, renewing ourselves to God. And so there's this choice. The world I don't have that someone else is living that I start to hate them for or the actual life that God has called me to. They set a table today for me to live into. I return to that place. And in that place of gratitude and joy, as your peace increases, it becomes, the psalmist says, a sanctuary, a safe place, a place of peace in a world of anxiety. If you're struggling for peace this morning, know that it's your returning to worship of God each and every day. Not the, not the life you don't live, but in worshiping God, that your peace will be restored and returned. Just in close, I'll tell you the story of how this made real practical um, sense in my life. It was some years ago, we were worshiping. I was Before I was a professional Christian, before I was a pastor, we were worshiping at Bethany Green Lake. We just built this new building. Um, but many of us were still gathering in, in an old building next door. They had a, what's called a video cafe, and we were, we were just in this room. It was like 
50 people in a room around tables. We had little kids at the time, but man, um, what was going on in my life right then was, was envy. Married for eight, nine years, not happy in our marriage, couple young kids, not thriving as a father, remodeling a house, definitely not thriving as a contractor, not thriving in my business. There was this common refrain, not thriving. And as we went to worship that day, man, I was envying a life other than the one I was in. I was broken. I was totally discouraged. To even go to church felt like, man, can I even go to church today? Isn't church where everyone goes that's already filled up? Nah, little dirty secret. Everyone around you is also nursing doubts and envies and heartbreaks. So for me that morning, as we started to sing this song, the worship leader, a guy named Chris and his wife Rebecca, they were just two people on a stage, pretty simple. How great is our God? Sing to me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. What the Lord started to do then just showed me little snapshots not of a life that he was going to provide for me someday, but of the actual life I was already living, and I had missed it. I'd missed the beauty in it. I missed it. And I was literally, we were singing, and I started to see these snapshots of my wife, and though our love had grown cold, like calling me to return and renew to serve her, and things with my kids to be a better dad in my home, and and a, a way to worship Christ more than just what he would do next for me. And we started to sing, and I started to weep, and God cracked me open. The worship didn't come from the overflow. The worship was born out of the envy and the doubt, and God changed me. So may we be a church that learns in the midst of the doubt and the midst of the envy, we have a choice before us to worship God in the midst of the life we are already living and not wait for what he's going to do next. And it's safe to tell you the old story, but I already told you the new story about Wednesday. Don't worry, by Wednesday night, I got to a good place with the Lord too. This is our everyday reality, that if we don't root out the places of envy then doubt will slowly overtake the goodness of God. And he wanted to remind you this morning, he's for you. Not just for the end, but for today. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your church, for your people, for your time and your place. And what a mystery that even a day like today, with trucks breaking down and worries about viruses and economies and all this, that you ask us to put our faith in you. Not on a candidate, not on a sports team, not on a, not on a building for a worship gathering or something else. Like every one of us in the room, God, is sitting on a lottery ticket that we're hoping to scratch. And we want you to fill it out the way that our hearts desire. But this morning, this people, God, in declaration of your goodness, is turning again to say it's not the envy that we'll turn to. But we are hungry to encounter you. We hunger to, to, to experience you today. And God, as we run to you, we want to have our faith renewed and our hope renewed. God, for those in the room that feel like doubt and envy are creeping up higher and higher as floodwaters rise, would you meet them in the intimacy of their heart this morning and encourage them? 
God, for the ones that are filled up, would you give them a sense of peace and tell them to look to their right or their left? Who do they need to serve in this time of abundance? Jesus, we want to encounter you this Lenten season. We're going to head out into the wilderness of our lives and, and to give some things up or take on new spiritual practices to encounter you in new and deeper ways. We want to run to you. And we would ask, God, that you would renew us and restore us with your goodness. Increase our faith, even while we struggle in the midst of envy and doubt. We love you, God. And all God's people said, amen. Will you stand with us as we close with two songs? And as we sing, may it be a declaration. I know that there are things you're wanting God to do next. But this morning, we will declare God's praise as we run to the Father. Let's sing and close in worship.